Hey guys, good to see you. Uh, glad you're tuning in this week. I'm Dan, one of the pastors here. Love the fact you're hanging out with us uh, for the next 40 minutes or so. Uh, I love the fact that I'm getting to hear from some of you, and uh, I've actually had a chance to meet some of you. Love for you to reach out, communicate with us. It always helps us to know who we're talking to. And so love the fact that we get a chance to spend this time with you. If you're ever in the area or you live in the area, love to see you at one of our services, 8, 9, 30, 11 and 5.30 on Sundays. Uh, as we look forward to Easter, it might be a great time for you to stop in and pay us a visit. But we're in this series, and uh, the series is in Exodus 34. I'd love for you to open your Bible there. And it makes me think of a question. You ever had somebody that had a wrong impression about you? Maybe your first impression was their lasting impression, and it was a wrong impression. You ever had that? Uh, and, and so what happens is they get this impression about you, and then it affects the way they act towards you or don't act towards you, the way they respond, the way they speak, the way the conclusions they draw, the things they assume. It just kind of affects that. I remember we moved into our house we're in now, and uh, the day we were moving in, I had sunglasses on, I had a ball cap on backwards, I think, I had a cut off sleeves, and my neighbors, who we've become over the last 14 years really, really good friends with, but they looked out and saw me unloading a truck, I'm dripping with sweat, and they said, oh man, this guy who's moving in next door is part of a motorcycle gang. <laughs> I loved it, right? Uh, when I heard that. You know, what's even funnier about it is this. When they found out I was a pastor, they're like, oh, no, that's worse. <laughs> and they were kind of kidding about that. But uh, you can get a wrong impression about somebody. Uh, it's one thing when it's a person, but it's an entirely different thing when it's God. Some of us have a wrong impression about God. Uh, and our wrong impression is because we're not informed about God. So here's what we do. We draw conclusions about him or we hear people say things about him, read a bumper sticker about him. Maybe grandma said this about him. Whatever it might be, but we end up with this wrong impression. Uh, you might have a wrong impression about God. Maybe your first impression is your lasting impression and it was an impression you got because somebody said something about God and you just assumed it to be true. Um, we're reading this uh, this book uh, here, and it's helped us in this series. It's by John Mark Comer, and he says this. I, I just this is interesting. Uh, in his book, he says, "If you think of God as a homophobic, racist, and mad at the world uh, God, this is a distorted vision of reality, and it will shape you into a religious bigot who is homophobic, racist, and mad at the world. But if you think of God as a left coast educated." LGTBQ affirming progressive, that will shape you into the stereotype of the wealthy bohemian with the we will not tolerate intolerance bumper sticker on the back of your hybrid. Now what he's saying is this, you see what I'm getting at. If you think of God as a cosmic version of a life coach there to maximize your life, it's going to shape you into a self-helpy yuppie, even if you dress it up and call it following Jesus. What he's saying is how we see God matters because it affects the way we respond to him. That's why this series is so important because this is God revealing himself to Moses subsequently to us. And we've looked at it each week. This is our final week. God passed in front of Moses, it says, proclaiming the Lord of the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. He's emotionally invested and he acts on our behalf. He's slow to anger. His anger is rooted in his holiness and love. He's abounding in hesed and emet. You remember that week. Hopefully, if you didn't get a chance to check it out, go listen. Maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Pastor Aiden did a fabulous job leading us through that conversation. And then for today, we need to talk about the rest of it. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. 
He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. Let's just be honest, talk about the elephant in the room. This part has created tension for some of you that have been following us in this series from day one. Somebody asked me last week, who picks who preaches which sermons? Well, normally it's me. Uh, But for this series, I gave it to Pastor Aiden. And he said, I want you to do that one. <laughs> and I don't mind. Uh, but, but this has caused some tension for some of you. It's like, what's up with God and my kids and my grandkids? And am I on the hook for my granddaddy stuff? Like, that's, that's the questions. And they're normal questions. And so uh, it'd be really easy just to stop our series there and not talk about this. Yet we have to pay attention to the Bible, to what God is saying, the whole Bible, even the parts that create attention and make us uncomfortable. Uh, I remember one time early in my ministry, I was preaching on the Bible, and the Bible is the inspired word of God. It is authoritative. It is inerrant. The whole Bible, I, I, was, I was talking, was God's book to us. And I had a lady, she's brand new in her journey. She cornered me uh, after the service. And uh, she was a truck driver, and I loved her. She'd just say whatever came to her mind, and, she, and a crowd started to gather. And she said, I love that sermon, Pastor Dan. That was awesome, but I don't agree with you. And I'm like, oh, wow. And she said, I just don't believe all of the Bible is true and all the Bible is inspired. She said, I heard you say that. I don't believe. And I said, oh, man, it's all. What do you believe? And everybody's gathering around. They want to hear this gal. She's going to corner the preacher, right? (laughs) And uh, she said, I believe the parts that I feel in my heart are true. And I said, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, there were some kids playing out on the porch of the church, and they were causing quite a, quite a commotion. And I said to her, I said, hang on here a second. I love that. These kids are really getting loud. I'm going to go out there and kill a few of them so we can continue our conversation. She looked at me. She's like, what are you talking about? You know, you can't do that. I said, why not? She said, well, because it says so in here. And I said, well, what if I don't feel that part in my heart? You see, it creates attention. <laughs> now, I was exaggerating my example. I was exaggerating it to make a point. We got to pay attention to the Bible, even the parts that make us feel uncomfortable, create tension for us. Because if you don't, you end up, listen close, worth writing down, no slide for it. You end up with a God of your imagination, not a God of divine revelation. You end up with a God of your imagination, not a God of divine revelation. And the truth of the matter is we need a God who will challenge us, who will offend me sometimes, who at sometimes will disagree with me. I had a young person come to me one time and they were living a lifestyle that was not something that God uh, would say is his design, his purpose uh, in his word. It was very clear to them. They knew it was clear and they wanted to corner me. And they said, what do you think about me? I said, I love you. I love you. And they said, what does the church think about me? I said, we love you. Come sit beside me every Sunday. (laughs) No one sits in the front row. (laughs) Come sit beside me. We love you. He said, no, no, what I want to know is what do you think about what I'm doing? And he was doing something that was obviously sinful and contrary to God's design and plan. And I answered his question with a question. I said, maybe the question that you need to entertain is this. Are you willing to have a God who disagrees with you? Because if you're not, then who's God? You are. It's a God of your imagination, not a God of divine revelation. So we need to look at this. We need to look at this. We love the first part. Lots of wall hangings with that on it, right? I don't see many wall hangings in people's houses with this part of the verse on it, right? And if there is, 
<laughs> we might need some counseling, right? Can you imagine showing up uh, in your living room and that's what you're staring at? Man, your kids are gonna need a little bit of counseling, right? But what's interesting is this. He says, yeah, that word literally in Hebrew means at the same time that God is merciful, at the same time that he's compassionate, faithful, full of hesed and amet, forgiving, he, yet at the same time, all these things are true, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. I love that. Uh, different versions kind of help us with this. ESV, he will no, by no means clear the guilty. That's God. God is a God who by no means leaves the guilty unpunished. That's God. But I do not excuse the guilty. That's the New Living Translation. I love that. What is God trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us he is loving. Yes, he is gracious. Yes, he is faithful. Yes, he is forgiving. Yes, and at the same time, he is just. He's a just God. It's not that he's loving sometimes and sometimes he's just but he is always loving, always just. They go in tandem with each other. That is who he is. And there is something that that means. That means this, because God is just, he must deal with sin. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. God's love and his forgiveness does not mean that he's okay and overlooks sin. Sin, write this down somewhere, sin is a big deal to God. And he must and he will always deal with it. In fact, you want him to. To not deal with sin, to not somehow deal with the sin that he sees in my life, in your life, is for him to act unlike God. He is just. We can be confident that he will always act like God. He'll always show up. He's faithful. He's consistent. He is just. Now, here's the deal. Unfortunately, right? Just stay with me on this, right? Tracking. Unfortunately, sin is not always as big a deal to me. Or maybe a better way to put it is at least my sin isn't as big a deal to me. Your sin, that's another story. Isn't that true? Come on, just a different sermon. Let's get real about that. My sin, I find ways to minimize, diminish, excuse away, explain away. Your sin, I find ways to magnify. I find ways like I can't believe, right? Like, like, my sin isn't always a big deal. And the minute, ready, listen, the minute I make my sin not so big a deal, I have a God of my imagination, not a God of divine revelation. Very important that you hear that. I think we live in a culture that is, people would say, I love God, serve God, I worship God, but the God they're loving, serving, following, and worshiping is a God of their imagination. And he's a God of divine revelation, told us who he is. And the minute I minimize sin, excuse it away, diminish sin in my life or in our world, whatever it might be, I have a God of my imagination, not a God of divine revelation, and I diminish the message of the cross because God is just, and the story of Jesus and what he did at the cross is the story, listen close, of the just God being the one who justifies sinners. I gotta show you this powerful passage. It's in Romans chapter three. Look at what it says. It says, for all have sinned. <clears throat> that's you and me, sinners. We all fall short. That's what Aiden taught us last week. We missed the mark, fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely, that's grace, by his grace, through the redemption bought back that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. He literally took my place. He took my punishment. 
he stood in my stead. That's what he did. Through the shedding of his blood at the cross to be received by faith. I can't work to be okay with God. I can't work to be justified. I receive the gift of salvation. He did this to demonstrate this is the character of God, his righteousness. He's a righteous, just God because in his forbearance, he's a slow to anger God. He had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just, he's a just God and the one, say it, say it, who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God is just and sin is a big deal to him. You and I are sinners. Thank you, Adam. For just as sin entered the world through Adam, now you and I are all sinners, right? Romans 5, you ought to check me on that. And this just God, according to Romans 3, becomes the justifying God because Christ is God in the flesh taking my place on the cross. Jesus is the just one who's dying in the place of all of us who are unjust. And I'll either choose to keep carrying my guilt and my sin till I stand before God, or I will cast it onto Jesus, the one who died for all the things I'm guilty of, the sin in my life. Either the just God will judge me at the end of my life, or the just God will justify me when I place my faith and trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior and as my Lord and as my King. Have you done that? He is a just God. He cannot just say, oh, it's not a big deal. Sin is a bigger deal to God than you think. And when I make it a lesser deal, I lessen the God of the Bible and I lessen the, I diminish the message of the cross. He is a just God. That is what he is, who is a gracious God. And this just God becomes my justifier at the cross. And he's inviting you to accept that free gift of salvation. Jesus took your place. You see, he is a just God. He, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. Now look at this. Then it says this. Everybody just do this. Come on, I see. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. It's like everybody collectively out loud, what's up with that? Right? Like, Are you serious? Does it really say that? Uh, Let's just take this uh, slow here for a minute and let's make some observations. This is a head scratcher. Uh, I think the key is understanding this word, punish. Uh, I put up here the Hebrew word and the Hebrew word is paked, uh, to attend to, to visit, muster, appoint, to care for. I mean, it can mean punish and it can mean these things. And so these other versions, I love ESV, he visits the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. I love the way the Nebuchadnezzar is responding to the transgression of fathers by dealing with the children of children's children. Uh, I really love the NLT. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected. It begs this question, like, what is going on here? Sin is a big deal to God. We've already established that. He wants it to become a bigger deal to you and I. And we need to explore what he's saying here. And equally so, can we just say this? We need to explore what he's not saying. I mean, because it begs the question, what does God have against children and grandchildren? 
What is he not saying? Let's, let's start there. Sin is a big deal. But this is not God enforcing generational curses. The idea here in a generational curse is my grandpa messed up, my daddy messed up, now our family is cursed. And, and, and so some of us, when we read this, that's how we read this. Our mind naturally goes there, particularly if you've gone through some really hard things. Like, I think our family's cursed because my grandpa and his dad, and, right? I got an email from a dear uh, person here in our church, and they said, man, I've been going through some of my grandparents' stuff, and I found this, and I found this, and they were uncovering all this stuff. And they're like, I wonder if my family is cursed. I don't believe that's at all what Exodus 34 is talking about. There's several reasons for that, not the least of which it would be inconsistent with other things God says in Scripture. In Deuteronomy, Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Now, now that tells me it's inconsistent with that. It's still got some rough stuff in there, but is right? Uh, I love Ezekiel 18. It says this. It says, the one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them. I don't think this is God enforcing generational curses. Some of you are glad about that because, man, you got a closet full of skeletons. I got it. I get it. I hear you. Your family tree, tree man, it kind of gets weird in places, right? I get it. But I don't think that's what Exodus 34 says. So, so what is it talking about? Well, if you got a pen and paper, I'd write this down. I think there's three things I, I, I want to say. Maybe there's more we could say. Let's say three for today. Sin's a big deal. That can and does have generational consequences. You ought to write that down. Sin is a big deal. My sin has a ripple effect that will impact my family. I would say it this way. My sin always has a ripple effect, always affects others, always there's an effect that ripples, and it's going to affect the people closest to me most. It's going to have the biggest impact on them. I, I believe that. Uh, I love the way the NLT, the entire family is affected. I've heard people say, well, it's my sin and it only impacts me. That's that, Rarely, if ever, is that true. Sin has a ripple effect and it's going to affect generation. Just think about this, and I hate using this example. I'll just use, Imagine if I had an affair. Now, I, right? Just imagine. It. Sure, it's going to affect me. I'm sinning, Right? To have an emotional, sexual, physical relationship with somebody that's not my wife is something God is clear about, right? And so if I had an affair, it's going to affect me. It's going to affect the person I'm having the affair with. It's going to affect my wife. But listen to me. It's going to affect my kids and their spouses. And listen to me. It's going to affect my grandkids. You see what I'm saying? Like sin can and does have generational consequences. If your dad had a temper, you know this. Oh, man, it's just a short fuse. Explain it away. He had a short fuse. But the fact of the matter is some of you have learned how to navigate life with a dad who was angry, and his anger just was volatile. And so you remember clearly patching drywall in your home all the time. Or maybe worse yet, you remember as a kid how to preoccupy yourself and even hide when he came home from work because he had a temper. It affects you, and it has somehow affected who you are today. Or some of you grew up and your mom was an alcoholic. Like she's just always drunk. And you, it affects the generation. Like you had to figure out how to survive on your own. You had to figure out, right? You, you had an absentee mom because she 
with somebody that was not able to care for you and nurture you as a mom. Sin has consequences. I would even say this. I talk to kids that have weathered divorce. And this isn't like we all have our stuff. But very rarely, if ever, do I hear kids like, man, I hope my mom and dad get divorced. They're always rooting for mom and dad. Because there's impact. There's there's ramifications. Uh, For some of you, if your dad was absent, it's affected you. He chose to apathetically, right? I would, I would say this. Can I say this? That there are generational consequences. I used this extreme example at the beginning if I had an affair. But, but the, the fact of the matter is the Bible talks about spiritual adultery. And my kids and my grandkids, if I am an apathetic follower of Jesus, where... where Jesus and following him and knowing him is not my priority, it will have an impact on the kids. I had a dad come in and tell me one time that one of his greatest regrets was this. He involved his kid in everything under the sun and the relationship with Jesus and being involved with a local assembly of people who were following Jesus was way down on the list. They came when there wasn't something else going on. And he sat in my office and he said, I wish I could go back and change that. What is he saying? He's saying that my decision to not make Jesus Lord of my life, King of my life, there was other things that were king, hobbies and sports and whatever, affects my kid. He said, now my kid doesn't want anything to do with Jesus. It just has impact. You get it, right? If I get incarcerated, the impact goes clear down. The point is this, sin is a big deal. It can and does have consequences. It can and does have generational effects. It also will help you understand some things when you begin to look at your family tree. I think it's saying something else. If if you have your pen, I would write this down, that sin is a big deal. They can and does have generational patterns. My family of origin has impact and effect on my life. I've been to a lot of doctors the last two years. You know, I've told you guys about that some and uh, even got a doctor's appointment later today. And every time I go, I don't know why they can't keep my answers, in, but I love, every time I go, they, they want to know all about my family. And, and I had to fill this thing out of family history. Did your mom have this? Did your dad have this? Did your mom have this? How about your granddad? And every time I do that, I, I always, I say to Jennifer, it's not looking good for me, <laughs> Right? Like, why are they doing that? Because there's things that get passed down. And like, well, she had this. Did anybody have cancer? Did anybody have this disease? Did anybody have high blood pressure? I'm getting high blood pressure just talking about family history. Because it doesn't look good for me. Why do they do that? Because there's patterns and there's cycles. And they want to kind of track that stuff. There's several doctors that have me on a certain list because of certain things my dad had or or my mama had, right? They're like, hey, man, we see this elevated. We're going to, right? It is interesting to me, it's not just physically, how the older we get, the more we see our parents in ourselves. My my family's always telling me this. The older I get, they're like, oh, John, that's my dad's name, John. (laughs) I'm acting like John, (laughs) right? Uh, One thing, my dad used to be able to sit down and watch a show and uh, he'd fall right asleep. Uh, This last week, I've had a crazy week, busy week, and... uh, the nights I, I was home, I, I like to watch a little news, and uh, I haven't made it through the news yet. <laughs> I thought I sleep like John, right? 
I had the privilege this last week uh, to babysit my grandkids. It was Pappy and his two grandkids, man. It was awesome, and, and I kind of saw this. In fact, my daughter-in-law sent this picture, and I thought to myself, there's my granddaughter. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> she got a toilet seat around. And I thought, man, I don't know. Uh, hopefully, we didn't pass something down to her, right? <laughs> is what I think to myself. But, but I think the fact of the matter is, is that, uh, that many times we pass these things on, we begin to see them. Uh, when I was babysitting my grandkids, they, they were great for me. They, we had a great time. And uh, the fact of the matter is, when it came time for me to go, my grandson, he's like four, he, he gets um, like less than cooperative. He's great all night. And he gets real standoffish and kind of, and it dawned on me. And I called him over to me and he came. And I whispered in his ear and I said, Corbin, you know something I just noticed? You hate goodbyes. And he kind of looked up at me like, I do. And I said, did you know Pappy hates goodbyes? I said, and Uncle A hates goodbyes, and right? Like, like these gen- like patterns, that's why it happens. Well, in a fascinating book uh, that I think is awesome, Pete Scazzaro says, when the Bible uses the word family, it's referring to our entire extended family over three to four generations. That means your family, in the biblical sense, includes all your family back to the mid to late 1800s. That's interesting. We are affected by many events and circumstances during our earthly lives. That's true. Yet, our families are the most powerful group to which we will ever belong. That is true. What happens in one generation often repeats itself in the next. The consequences of actions and decisions from one generation affect those that follow. And then he says this. This is worth writing down. Take a picture of this. He says, Jesus may be in your heart, but Grandpa's in your bones. (laughs) That's so true, isn't it? It is so true. It is a pattern that we can see played out even in the Bible. The people of Exodus would have heard about it. They would have learned about it from the people that they revered, the patriarchs. It would have gone the whole way back to Abraham. Do you remember Abraham's story? I won't go into detail, but Abraham, this man that God calls out to be his representative, he's going to literally, he's going to give Abraham this blessing where the descendants of Abraham are going to be like the stars in the sky, all that kind of stuff. But you read his story twice. Now, Abraham did something that was, I don't know, head scratching. His, his wife, apparently Sarah was beautiful. She was apparently beautiful. And so twice, because he was afraid he lied and said, she's my sister, so that he could save his own skin. Fascinating. What's interesting is, when you get to Isaac, guess what he does? Same thing. When you get to Jacob, guess what his name means? Deceiver. And then you get to the story of Joseph, what did his boys do? What his brothers do? Jacob's boys. Well, they sold their brother into slavery and then what they do to their dad? They what? Lied about it. Do you see how it, it just happens? Over, there's a pattern to this. Just think about this a little bit. Just think about it. How did your family deal with conflict? For some of you, the way they dealt with it is they never dealt with it. And so you're sitting there, I wonder how in the world, why in the world I'm so averse to conflict? I don't want to deal with it. I'm afraid of it. Others of you, you grew up listening to them yell and scream and the loudest person wins. And so your wife or your husband can't figure out why you're yelling and screaming. There's, oh man, I'm just like my mom or I'm just like my dad. Or how about this? How'd they handle money? For some of you, you grew up and they were tight-fisted and very not generous because they were always afraid they wouldn't have enough. 
You're like, well, I wonder why I'm so worried about money all the time. Or for others of you, they were frivolous and not generous because they never had enough because they always spent it. You're like, I wonder, right? It begins to explain some things. Uh, how did the, the, your family of origin talk about races? The races, different racial uh, uh, groups of people. Well, you might grow up in a family, they never did. And so for you, it's like, I'm just totally ignored. But, but, but for, for others of you, maybe you grew up with a racist um, grandpa, right? Maybe they used terminology that you're very, like, and all of a sudden, like, I wonder why I have this skepticism or I look at everybody, right? Like they have these generational patterns. Uh, how does your family view and talk about sexuality? Uh, maybe you grew up in a family that it was very promiscuous. You're like, I wonder why I have this distorted and struggle with this idea of sexuality. Uh, I meet all kinds of uh, men in my office that struggle with pornography. And I can't tell you the percent of time, but it's a high percent of time. Like, where did it begin for you? Well, I found my dad's Playboy, right? Like, like there's these generational patterns uh, in his book, Pete Scazzaro, this is a rather long quote, and you can slow it down and take pictures of it. He says, someone may look like an individual acting alone, but they are really players in a larger family system that may go back, as the Bible says, to three or four generations. Unfortunately, it's not possible to erase the negative effects of our history. What happens in one generation often gets repeated in the next. The consequences of actions and decisions taken in one generation affect those who follow. Family patterns from the past are played out in present relationships. You see that probably without us necessarily being aware of it. While we are affected by powerful extended circumstances through our earthly lives, our families are the most powerful group to which we will ever belong. Even those who left homes as young adults determined to break from their family histories soon find that their family's way of doing life follows them wherever they go. This family history lives inside of all of us, especially those who attempt to bury it. The price we pay for this is flight, and for, for this flight is high. Only the truth can set us free. I agree with him. I agree with him. That's why this, um, I'm going to show you this little picture here, has become very, this is called a geneogram. And literally, it's like taking the time to say, well, this is me, this is my brother and my sister, my mom and my dad, and begin to trace back. And it's amazing. Why would you do that? Because the more you pursue understanding, the better you might be able to apply wisdom. And the reason you would do that is because of this quote by a philosopher and author named George. He said this, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Like why in the world would you do this little chart? Because he says those who can't remember the past, won't learn from the past, are inclined to repeat it. I think it's true. Uh, there's one more thing, and then I want to make some application. Sin is a big deal, and it's the same big deal in every generation. I think this passage helps me see that. It has consequential effects. They affect generations. There's patterns that need broken. And then to recognize that sin is sin. Like, we can explain sin away, but it's still sin in each generation. The idolatry of the people of Israel would be repeated, like they made that golden calf, it'd be repeated over and over and over again for generations to come. And God being a just and faithful God is consistent and just and righteous in his evaluation. Listen close. Morality, ethics, and sexuality are not somehow evolving with time. 
I've read some articles this week, don't have time to read them to you, but, but we have this idea that somehow morality and ethics is shifting with time. Well, that's because we have a God of our imagination, not a God of divine revelation. And so somehow we say, well, that was wrong for in the 1950s or the early 1900s. But we're in a different time now, and so morality shifts and ethics shifts. And I think this just God who is a God who loves us, a God who is slow to anger, but he is just. I think the point here is, is that sin is the same big deal in every generation. It's the same big deal. Uh, Comer in his book says this, I'll read it. Don't think because God punished your daddy for idolatry or sexual immorality, you're off the hook for your own idolatry and immorality. God will visit you in the same way. Now, sin's a big deal to God. He must deal with it. Sin's a big deal. And my sin has generational consequences. Uh, sin's a big deal, and sin also shows up in generational patterns. And sin's a big deal, and it's the same big deal in every generation. We, it's not a popular thing for us to talk about 2023. Don't judge me. Well, it's never my place to condemn somebody. I agree with that, but sin is still a big deal. Right? And so that leads us to maybe one more thing that I want to show you. It's interesting. Go back to our passage. I want to show you something and then, then make some application. Two applications and we're done. God is a God who keeps steadfast love for thousands. Remember that. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children, to the third and fourth generation. This is something maybe you wouldn't know, but this part of Exodus is written in poetry and the technical term, you can forget this, is chiasm. Uh, it's a chiasm. Uh, that literally the way you're supposed to read this is this. That it's, a, it's got kind of a um, pattern to it. That the first line, keeping steadfast love for thousands, goes uh, with the last line. And then forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin uh, goes with this line. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the children. And in the middle, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Uh, what's interesting here is when you read this, and I hope you will see this, that uh, there is a big difference between this number and this number, third and fourth generation. Uh, the word generation is actually supplied. It's assumed. Uh, there's other passages that might help us understand that. But for the sake of just observation, can we recognize that his steadfast love for thousands of generations is a drastic contrast to him uh, visiting the iniquities for three and four generations. I think it might be pointing to something Jesus' half-brother said when he said this. He said, I want you to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy, look what he says, triumphs over judgment. He's saying mercy outweighs judgment. For some of you, this will change the way that you see God. You ever been on a seesaw? Raise your hand. Come on. I see that. Uh, you ever been on a seesaw and you were the really, really light, skinny kid and every kid that got on the other side was heavy and chubby? 
what happens to seesaw? It goes, Womp, and you're always up in the air, and right? I was always the, on the chubby kid side, right? <laughs> okay? So I'm like, hey, little kid up there, I don't know how to get this thing working, right? Uh, when a seesaw is out of balance, or when, when it's weighted one way, it's going to go like this. I, I just think what he's saying is this, is that mercy triumphs over judgment. And that is predominantly what God wants us to know about him, that he is Yahweh. He does not leave the guilty unpunished. He visits the sins of the fathers on the children of the grandchildren, three, four generations. But I think the key and the clue is, is that he wants us to know that he is a God full of compassion, steadfast love for thousands. I love that. That's really good news. So what do we do with this really tough passage that now we've made some sense of? Can I suggest two things? First is this. Know that forgiveness is available. At the cross of Jesus, the just God became my justifying Savior. At the cross of Jesus, the just God became my justifying Savior. This is amazing. This is amazing. God reveals himself in Exodus 34 in a profound way. But when you and I fast forward to the New Testament, we see that he, the God of Exodus 34, shows up in the person of Jesus. John 1 says Jesus is the perfect explanation of God. What's even more fascinating and more profound to me is that when God showed up, the profound beauty and truth of the God of Exodus 34 comes into complete focus at the cross of Jesus. Did you ever think about that? That at the cross of Jesus, we see his forgiveness. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. At the cross of Jesus, we see God's compassion. God demonstrated his love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. At the cross of Jesus, we see the slow to anger, patient God, not willing for any to perish, saved us from the wrath of God through the cross. We see the just God at the cross being the justifying God. And now because of the cross, there is no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We see the gracious God, for it is by grace that you're saved through faith. It's not of yourself, not by works, lest any of us should boast. And we see the unfailing said of a God who says, nothing can separate you from my love. I want you to hear this. I don't know where you're all at, but forgiveness is available. That God is a just God. He does not overlook sin. He, sin is a big deal to God. But that just God, the story of Good Friday and Easter is about that just God becoming my justifying Savior. And he's making that invitation to you today. Have you ever said yes to Jesus as your Savior, as your Lord, as your King? Have you ever recognized that he died on the cross for you? That he paid the penalty for you? That he took the punishment that was meant for you so that you could... Stand before that just God, justified. Not because of what you've done. Some of us spend our whole life trying to justify our experience and our, our, our existence. But we stand before God justified because we stand cloaked in the identity and the righteousness of Christ when we say yes to him. Have you ever given your heart and life to Christ? Don't turn this off. Have you ever given your heart and life to Jesus? If not, why not right there, right now? Pray to God and say, God, I believe you love me. I believe Jesus died for me, and I know I'm a sinner. And I want to quit carrying it. 
I want to quit covering it. I want to cast it onto Jesus, the one who died for me. That moment, the just God becomes the justifying Savior in your life. If you prayed that, if you prayed that, will you please, I beg you, please email me. Will you please somehow let us know that? I think there's another application, and it's this. That forgiveness is available, but healing's possible. In the family of God, I can experience healing from my family of origin, and I can extend healing to my family of origin. You see, when we come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord, we are saved into the family of God. That's, that's a term used throughout Scripture to define God's family as those who've placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He is our Father. Jesus is our Savior. The Spirit of God dwells within. And now I'm part of a family where Pete Scazzaro uses this terminology. I love it. He says where this reparenting takes place. Because we all have consequences that are generationally passed down. We all have patterns that we're trying to break. And he says in the family of God, there's the opportunity to be reparented. And that is the secret to healing of the generations and the impact of sin. For some of us, it's this. When we give our heart and life to Jesus as part of the family of God, it's going to my family and asking them to forgive me for the ways that I have fallen short that have affected them. For others of you, it's looking at your genogram and saying, wow, my family and my dad and my mom did all these things and I'm paying the, my life was different. And for you, it might be extending to them forgiveness, the same forgiveness you receive at the cross. For others of you, it's simply being aware of why you respond the way you respond, why you do some of the things you do. And, and being aware of it is never an excuse. Well, I'm that way because my dad was, my grandma. Never an excuse, but an explanation. And it's only when you begin to get that explanation that you can recognize the generational pattern, you can repent and break the cycle and all of a sudden extend healing to your family. You can all of a sudden extend hope to your family. You can all of a sudden make Jesus make sense to your family. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you for this series. I want to pray for my friends watching. Some of them don't know Jesus as Savior. They, they've never placed their faith and hope in Christ. I pray right there where they're sitting couch at work, driving their car, they would say yes to Jesus as the only one that can save them and justify them. They go from being condemned to being justified in your eyes. And God, I pray that right there in their space that they're at, they would give their heart and life to Christ. God, there's some of us that are really struggling because the toxicity of our family of origin has affected us. And some of us hold deep bitterness. That might be you watching this. You have deep bitterness and resentment for your family. And I pray through the power of the cross as part of the family of God, that you would begin to work in their heart in a way they might extend forgiveness to those who have hurt them, forgiveness to those who have uh, abandoned them, forgiveness to those who have wronged them. Some of us are the people that we, we've not been showing up in our kids' life. We, uh, some of the things we're struggling with are having this seismic uh, uh, impact on our family. I pray that you give us the courage to go and confess and ask forgiveness. And I pray that you'd help us to understand that sin is a big deal and it goes way beyond us. 
I'm so grateful that you are a just God who became at the cross our justifying Savior. I love you. I pray this in Jesus' name.